0: TED Audio Collective.
1: This archival episode of Design Matters originally dropped in December of 2022.
2: Here I am, I'm 24 years old, and I'm designing shoes for these guys who are younger than me by the name of Tupac, by the name of Notorious B.I.G. and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Puffy and not knowing that these would become hip-hop royalty. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design
1: Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, shoe
2: designer Dwayne Edwards talks about how competition helped his craft. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be next to the best. I mean, where do I stack up in in that equation?
1: I'm Dylan Marin and I have 30 seconds to convince you to listen to my new podcast about Jar Jar Binks. Yep, Jar Jar Binks. So, Jar Jar was actually played by an actor named Ahmed Best, and he became the subject of one of the internet's very first hate campaigns. We made a podcast all about the early internet Star Wars cultural backlash, Jar Jar, and what happens when internet hate gets too real. Whew, Okay. Stick around after this episode for a taste of the show. You can find The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's not every kid who says to themselves, when I grow up, I'm going to be a footwear designer. Well, Dwayne Edwards did. At 19 years old, he became the youngest professional footwear designer in the industry. More than 30 years later, He's an award-winning, celebrated designer who has created over 500 styles of sneakers for the likes of Derek Jeter and Michael Jordan. He's worked for many of the biggest brands, including Nike, now, Dwayne Edwards is also an educator. In 2010, he founded Pencil, the first academy in the country specifically focused on the design of footwear, and now runs the HBCU Pencil Lewis College of Design and Business in Detroit, Michigan. Dwayne Edwards, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here and looking forward to the conversation.
0: Thank you. Me too. I want to ask, is it true that you are from two cities of champions?
2: I am. Believe it or not, two cities from the city of champions twice, 2,200 miles apart from each other. Um, One um, born in Joliet, Illinois, and then raised in Inglewood, California. Both are city of champions. Your
0: mom moved you and your five siblings by herself from Illinois to California. She moved you to Englewood when you were three months old. And you've talked about how she thought she was moving you all to a better city because Joliet was pretty rough, but Englewood was worse. In what way?
2: Well, you know, I think the first part that was better was the weather. So I think she was looking at the weather first and then just our environment that we were growing up in in Joliet. Um, Inglewood was different than Joliet. And Inglewood is where really the, the rise of, of street gangs really start to become popular in the 70s and 80s. And so that was what she moved us you know, into. Um, she didn't know. She was really just trying to create a, a better environment for us. And California was going to do that for us.
0: You and your two older brothers, Michael and Ronnie, were all born with a gift to draw. And your family knew about your talent because you drew all the time. But I read that you hid it from other people. Why were you keeping it a secret?
2: Well, I mean, at that point, you know, growing up in a a city like Inglewood, it wasn't drawing or being an artist wasn't a cool thing that you did. And so I just kind of kept it to myself because I knew people wouldn't necessarily understand that. But that was my sanctuary. That was my opportunity to just disconnect and and be creative. So I played sports, which I loved as well. That was also my sanctuary as well. But art was really the, the space where I was able to zone out and, and kind of, you know, really feel like myself.
0: You drew your first sneaker when you were 11 years old. And you've written about how drawing sneakers then became your obsession. What kinds of sneakers were you drawing? Were they original drawings of sneakers that you were imagining? Or were they realistic drawings of sneakers that already existed?
2: Initially, it was... Images of sneakers that currently existed. You know, I just wanted to draw anything I—I I, I could draw anything I could see, and and so I started drawing sneakers that I wanted to buy myself that I couldn't, <laughs> um, and and so that became my hobby of really and, and fascination really was drawing sneakers that I wanted, and then I started in high school started imagining my versions of sneakers that. Um, were not available in stores, so if I got a chance to design a shoe for Nike, or if I got a chance to design a shoe for Jordan, it would look like this.
0: You also started buying your own sneakers and then dyeing and customizing them so they'd be different from anyone else's. What kind of designs were you making, and do you still have any of those sneakers?
2: I, I wish I still had some of those things, um, but it was it was this was the 80s. This is the mid 80s, early 80s my high school colors were green and white and back in the 80s sneakers didn't come in green and white they they came in white 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 black maybe white silver so i just wanted sneakers to match my basketball uniform and so i would go to a store that used to be called builders and porham it was a precursor to home depot and go get my duct tape and exacto blades And then I would go to the local shoe repair shop and get my green dye. And then I would just tape up everything I did not want dyed, um, dyed my shoes up, and then went to school and people were just freaking out because I had shoes they would never seen before. And, you know, when you're in high school, you know, when you get that type of attention because of anything that you have on, you want to wear more of that thing. So that became my my sneaker addiction. Uh, That was when it started was when... I was able to get people's attention by having shoes that they never saw before.
0: I read that when you were 12, you started to enter magazine competitions where you were asked to draw a turtle Or a pirate. And I remember doing that too. When I was a kid, they were, they were ads in the TV guide. And so I did a little bit of research to remind myself where they were advertising from. And the ad was for art instruction schools, which is a Minneapolis based correspondence course. And you mailed in your drawing and won a scholarship. And when they found out you were 12, they stopped reviewing your submissions. (laughs) But I read that just winning gave you confidence. And because I did this research, I found out that... Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, also won a scholarship to go there. And he actually went. That's where he continued to learn how to draw. He's their most famous alum. So I guess those ads really worked. We both submitted and so did he. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's good company to be in. That's great.
0: (laughs) So Tippy the Turtle was the name of the turtle that they asked you to draw. After drawing Tippy, you went on to drawing baseball and football cards. And I read that you first Started drawing those types of cards because they always cut players off at the knees, and mm-hmm. you wanted to see their feet and their sneakers.
2: Yep, and w- my first time, I saw the the cleats were a nineteen eighty one Franco Harris football card, and he was wearing pony cleats and. It was it was just for me, they were the biggest things on the card. And so that started my fascination with just trying to correctly draw the shape and proportion of your foot and cleats. And that's really the hardest part. It's not so much the the cosmetic visual. It's the actual accuracy of the shape. Why is that so difficult? Because the human foot is not the same shape any way you turn it. So it's not symmetrical at all. And, and so you have to be very precise with every shape and every contour. And it took me a few tries to get it right, but that was really my fascination with accuracy and trying to draw exactly what I saw instead of, instead of an interpretation of what I saw.
0: And so what were you doing with these cards? Were you showing them to people? Were you just saving them for yourself? Were you sharing them with your brothers?
2: Oh well, first of all, I stole them from my mom, so they were flashcards that she would use and recipe cards that she would use, um, and and so uh, I would just start to co- collect them and just have my own little stack of my own little um, portfolio, so to speak. And and all through high school, that was the same way I drew. I just drew on. These three by five index cards on the because it it was one side had lines on it and the other side was clean and plain. So I would just draw on the clean side and then on the back side, I would like date it and and write like my inspiration on the back side of it. Incredible.
0: Please tell me you have these cards, please. I don't have one. I do not have one. that just
2: destroys me. I I wish I had them. I, I remember... Many times I was caught in math class drawing shoes when I should have been doing work. And my, my seventh grade math teacher, Mrs. Weathers, she made a deal with me. She says, hey, if you do your homework on time or do your class work on time, you could draw sneakers. And whenever I didn't do it, she would take the sneakers from me and keep them in her desk drawer. And many years after I graduated from high school, I went back to see her. And she still had some of my sketches in her oh, desk drawer. Good. I mean, we're good. talking... 10 years later, and she would not give them to me. She made me sign them, um, and she would not give, them, give me one of them, and I begged begged her. I wish I was able to get one.
0: Oh Well, maybe you should reach out again. I mean, or maybe at least she can take some photos of them for you. I know that when you were in school, you tried to get a job at Footlocker so you could get a discount, but they Mm -hmm. wouldn't hire you. Um, Instead, you got your first job at McDonald's when you were 16 years old. Um, Did you work all through high school?
2: All through high school.
0: And I read that while you were still in school, you met with your guidance counselor after you decided you wanted to become a sneaker designer and you were supremely excited at the time because you thought you figured out your life at 17 years old. Can you share with my listeners what the guidance counselor told you?
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's your senior year and you have to start taking things seriously so you can graduate and move on to college. I, I knew I wasn't gonna attend college because I'm the youngest of six kids raised by a single parent. But I was like, hey, you know, I can at least try to get into a college. And so I was really excited. The sneaker thing was going really well for me. I was customizing not only my own sneakers, but my friend's sneakers at school. So that became a little bit of a side hustle for me in in, in high school. And, And one day I was like, hey, you know, let me go talk to my counselor because her job is to help me figure out life after high school. And and so I go and really excited because I'm clear on what I want to do. And I said, hey, you know, her name is Miss Wilson Jefferson. It's like, hey, you know, I, I would like to speak to you about the fact that I finally figured out what I want to do. I, I want to become a, a footwear designer. And she pauses and looks at me dead straight in the face and says, do I know Black Kid from Inkwood would ever become a footwear designer? What do you think? And you need to come back and, and share with me something that's more practical. You know, have you ever thought about joining the military? Or have you thought about continuing on at McDonald's? And, you know, I was deflated, disappointed. Her rationale and, and reasoning was partly... Getting out of the city alive was a goal, right? If, if yeah. growing up as, as a black male growing up in Englewood in the 80s, getting to 18 and I'm still alive and not in jail is a is success. Uh, making it to 21 is almost a miracle. And so that was part of her message, but it wasn't the type of guidance I was expecting.
0: Shortly thereafter, you were looking at the WAN ads in the Los Angeles Times in an effort to get what you considered a more respectable job than the one at McDonald's. And at that point, were you thinking about going to college at all or was that just completely off the table?
2: No, it was off the table. One thing that Miss Wilson Jefferson did for me, though, was she allowed me to create a, a thank you wall of people who... Countless times told me I wasn't going to do anything and I wasn't going to be this or I wasn't going to be that. And um, I was literally at lunch in my lunch break <laughs> at work um, looking for another job. And, and there I saw the the biggest ad I've ever seen in my life, even though it was the smallest ad you can place in the L.A. Times. And it was for a sneaker design competition that Reebok was hosting. And Reebok, at the time, had an office in Santa Monica, California. They're a a Boston, Massachusetts-based brand. But their entertainment office had a competition. And I entered. It was basically, it was so small, it just had Reebok design competition and a phone number. And so I called the phone number to get the mailing address to send my actual submission. So I drew my versions of what Reebok should look like. And About a month later, I get a phone call and they said, come meet us at the Reebok offices in Santa Monica. I show up excited because, you know, they didn't tell me if I won or lost, but, you know, I figured it was some good news. And so I go and catch the bus for an hour to Santa Monica. And they were a little surprised that a 17-year-old black kid shows up. And they were like, well, the, the good news is you are talented and you won our competition, but... The bad news is you're too young to work for us and they said come back and see us after you graduate from college that was deflating because i knew i wasn't going to college and so reebok was also added to my thank you all um, mm. because i was like you know i legitimately won this competition and you discriminated against me because I'm young and black and 17, right? And not understanding companies have rules and regulations, but I just I was just angry. Yeah. I was happy, disappointed, angry all at the same time. And and I promised myself if I ever became a footwear designer, I would take it out on Reebok and make them regret <laughs> make them regret that they passed on me at 17 years old. Like,
0: oh, I'm sure they do now. Um you mentioned the thank you wall, and the thank you wall is a collection of things that have both inspired you and also discouraged you. Yeah. How has that sort of acknowledgement on the wall helped you understand both the encouragement as well as the obstacles?
2: You know, it. I, I believe whenever you have people that tell you you're not going to do something or discourages you. You have two options. Either you believe them or not. And then you have the option of using it as fuel to prove them wrong, or you can disappear in your own world. And I chose to acknowledge it, and I chose to use it as motivation because I I wanted to prove something to those people that they shouldn't talk to young kids like that. And so I developed a chip on my shoulder, and I think when when you have a chip, one way or another, it, it makes you work harder. And you know, it makes you do things with more um, intent than you would have if someone didn't necessarily do it. Which is strange, right? You would think that you you get all this support and encouragement, you'll be more motivated to do it. And that I had that on one side, but then I also had the negativity on the other side that outweighed the positivity. Because again, I'm 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 in the eighties in Inglewood. Like I'm not seeing success that looks like me. So I'm not seeing the probability of me being successful or doing something. And so I started to use the thank you all as motivation because I wanted to get out of my surroundings and get out of my environment. And what really hit home was, you know, shortly after I turned seventeen, my, my brother Michael passed away in a car accident. Yes. And and so when I saw him pass away and his gift he never got a chance to really fulfill using the gift that he was born with. That really also woke me up as well, where I I wanted to start taking life a bit more seriously because that was the the awakening that it wasn't tomorrow wasn't promised to you.
0: Meanwhile, your manager at McDonald's wanted to promote you to a swing manager Mm -hmm. and was encouraging you to have Mm -hmm. your own franchise one day. Was that ever, ever something that sounded appealing to you? (laughs) Uh,
2: Maybe for about 15 minutes. um, You know, there were conversations sending me to Hamburger University in Chicago, Illinois, which is McDonald's training program. Again, I'm 17 years old. Right. Um, And that's not what I wanted to wanted my future to look like. If it was a backup plan, maybe. But I just couldn't see it as my my future. And, and so I, I, I used her also. She was added to my thank you all because <laughs> she was like, you know, why are you going to try to become an artist? Like artists are always broke and mm. you're not going to become an artist. Like you're not going to have a good living. You can make a great living here at McDonald's doing this. And I'm not knocking anyone who works at McDonald's. And, and there's been amazing, you know, black franchisees over the years. That just wasn't my future that I saw. I needed her, though. To make sure I didn't go on that path, right? So I want mm-hmm. to make sure I proved her wrong as well. <laughs> um, and if if you notice, and I'm, I'm super competitive, and no, and uh, <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I still use it to this day. Uh, the 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 one thing you tell me is something I can't do, and you just started something.
0: Yeah, but your mom also, I mean, it's interesting. She gave you a card after you yes. weren't weren't able to start at Reebok that I know went on your thank you wall. And that was a, a greeting card that she bought you that was about believing in yourself. Yes. And and I I can only imagine, I know she's no longer with us now, but I can only imagine that she really wanted you to sort of follow your passion. Yeah. Even if that meant not being as secure or as stable as she would have wanted you to be financially. Yes.
2: Yeah. That the timing of that was right after my Reebok conversation and yeah. shortly after my brother passed because I was just down and out. Right. You know, I'm again, I'm I'm 17 years old, thinking my life is over and everything. Um, and yes, she went shopping um, and she brought me this 25 cent card Um, And I can read it to you if you like. Um, Yes. uh, It says, believe, really big up top. It says, believe in yourself, in the power you have to control your own life day to day. Believe in the strength that you have deep inside, and your faith will help show you the way. Believe in tomorrow and what it will bring. Let a hopeful heart carry you through, for things will work out. If you trust and believe, there are no limits to what you can do. And I believed her. Mm -hmm. And I used that as fuel. And every day since she brought me that card, I've always carried that card with me. Every time I'm going to speak somewhere or I feel like I need a little extra something, I have it in my pocket. Um, It's also a card that I give all of my students. Um, when they complete our programs, so they do know at least one person believes in their abilities and who they are, um, because that that little bit of power can take someone an awful, awful long way. Absolutely. I had a
0: teacher in college that was really the first person that gave me the sense that maybe I was smart. She believed in me. Mm-hmm. She believed in my mm-hmm. intelligence, and it it changed my life. It changed how mm-hmm. I felt about myself. It changed what I thought I could do. You said that while you were working at McDonald's, you learned that you weren't just working at this one McDonald's in Torrance, California. You were working at a big brand, and -hmm. they expected you to behave a certain way.
2: What did this teach you? So today, I guess in today's terms, the kids would call it code switching, I guess. Um, Mm. (laughs) uh, For me, I called it just knowing how to behave in the environments that you're in. Right. Where I couldn't show up to work with my clothes unironed and shirt untucked. And you have to look presentable. And, and I was able to make it to what's called swing manager, which is an assistant manager. So I got to wear a button up. Um, And a clip on tie. (laughs) Um, and, And so I had to look presentable because I was representing the restaurant. And so that taught me a certain level of personal responsibility for my appearance, because it wasn't just me I was being accountable for. It was also this establishment that was counting on me and paying me to look presentable and be polite to customers, even if you have a bad day. Right. And, you know, when you're in the service business, especially an organization like McDonald's, even if you have a bad day, the customer is always right. Mm-hmm. And so it did teach me that level of discipline and structure, even at a high school level of just how to properly carry myself and conduct myself and speak to people that I didn't know and people that maybe didn't like me because they had a bad experience at the store. But I had to still present myself in a certain way to make sure I was giving off the proper brand representation that McDonald's wanted wanted me to project out.
0: Shortly thereafter, you got a job working as a temporary file clerk in the accounts payable department of L.A. Gear, yeah. the popular footwear brand L.A. Gear. How did you get that job?
2: Yeah, what's, what's funny is uh, upon graduating from high school, Didn't go to college. Um, My friends met me and my friend decided to sign up for this temp agency called Robert Half and Account Temps. And he actually received the assignment to go to L.A. Gear first, but he didn't want to work in Marina Del Rey, which is where they were located. So he told the the agency um, he couldn't find the place. And so they were like, "Okay, well, then you go. And so they sent me because he didn't want to go. And and so I found it because it was a sneaker company. Now, it wasn't Nike, but it was still a sneaker company and I wasn't in design. I was in accounts payable. Right. And, And so for me, I was like, well, I'm here. Let me see if I can try to get a job as a footwear designer. This is in 1988. And so no email. Um, you know, no social media, no Internet. It was pretty much everything was hands on. Um, right. And so here I am filing my papers and, you know, filing all my receipts in alphabetical order. And one day the company decided, you know, they want to increase morale. And and so they installed these wooden suggestion boxes in every department with the idea of the employees dropping suggestions in the box that would Help give the company new insights into what they should do different and what they should do better, how the employees could be better treated at the organization. And as a non-full-time employee, I wasn't told I wasn't able, supposed to participate. (laughs) And so (laughs) I decided to participate in my way, which was my three by five index cards. And I'm drawing shoes that I think LA Gear should do. So I would, drop them in the suggestion box every morning before I go off and and start filing my papers. And about six months in, you know, I I hear this loud message over the intercom system. Again, there's no email. So back then, if – if someone wanted you in the company, the entire company found out. It's like and going so to the principal's office. I, pretty much, yes. Uh, and, and so I hear one day like Dwayne Edwards report to the president's office. And I'm just like, wait, did I just hear that correctly uh, first? Because <laughs> I'm like invisible. I'm a temp employee. How does the president even know who I am? And and so I reluctantly go to the president's office and immediately walk in and and apologize because I assumed it was because of what I've been doing to this box. And uh, (laughs) he, you know, he tells me to sit down and he said, you know, are you the person who's been putting shoe sketches in my suggestion box? And I'm just like, damn yeah, I'm sorry. Um, My apologies. I didn't mean to do that. I just love to draw. And I figured somebody would see it and maybe give me some tips On how I can become a designer one day. And he was like, Well, I tell you what, um, he pulled out all 180 of my sketches. He had 180 of my cards. And he said, I admire your ambition. And he said, You know, I would love to give you a chance to be a professional footwear designer. Would you be willing to accept an entry level footwear design job? And, um, and I was like, well, he, yes, uh, how much do I have to pay you for this job? Because <laughs> this, is, this is definitely my dream job. Um, and he goes, well, tell me a little bit more about yourself. And, and uh, he's like, tell me what college did you graduate from? And, and I was like, man, I just graduated from Inglewood High School like seven months ago. Like, uh, he was like, wait, you're in high school? And I was like, yeah, I just left like seven months ago. And he was like, so you did this with no formal training at all? And, he w- and I was like, yeah, I just love to draw. I've been drawing since I was, sneaker since I was 12. And he was like even more impressed by the fact that I had no training at all. Um, and so he offered me my job. Um, so he said, after the new year, report to the design department. And so I turned 19 in December. In January, I reported in to my design job.
0: You were the only black kid there. And you've talked about how some people were resentful um, and thought that you were a charity case kid. But when you heard that, you responded, all right, that's cool. I'll take it. How did you have that sort of generosity of spirit? I mean, I'm assuming they went up on your thank you wall. But what gave you the sense that it was what, what, what gave you the strength to be kind about it?
2: Well. Yes, they did. They did become members of my thank you wall, So they, they were at it. Honestly, it was me learning about Jackie Robinson. And so when I started to, when I was in high school, I started looking into just sports and black history. And I found a book on Jackie Robinson. It's called, I Never Had It Made. The cliff note version of his story is Jackie Robinson was selected to be the first black baseball player to play in major le- in the major leagues. He wasn't the best player. So back then, when we weren't allowed to play in professional sports, we had our own leagues. And so there was a league called the Negro Leagues that was founded in 1920. And it was a collection of some of the best black baseball players to play, but they weren't allowed to play in the professional major leagues. And so uh, Branch Rickey, who was the, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, selected Jackie. And they selected Jackie because Jackie was a military man. He was a college graduate. He went to UCLA. Um, he was the only and probably still probably one of the only college athletes to letter in four sports. Baseball was his worst sport. <laughs> um, and uh, so he ended up becoming the first one. But it was told that Branch Rickey selected Jackie because he had the temperament needed to succeed. And a part of his contract was that he was not allowed to fight back. He was not allowed to talk back. He he had to take the abuse that he was going to receive. And he felt he was the right person that would be able to do that. And so when I read his story, and then there was a movie that he played in, I found the movie. And I understood that, you know, if Jackie talked back, it would have taken years before other black ball players would have had a chance to be in the major leagues because that was the goal. The goal was for the players to piss off these guys, to prove that they didn't belong. And so I really understood Jackie's temperament and I understood that, Hey, you know, I I need to be a certain way. It was my McDonald's training as a swing manager. I needed to be a certain way in this environment that I was in and, and I had to put off a different aura than what they expected of me. And so that was really, really the mindset was keep my mouth shut and ask questions when I needed to understand, but soak up as much knowledge as possible.
0: You've said that you forced your way into the world of Robert Greenberg, a white Jewish man who gave a 19-year-old black kid from Englewood with no college education opportunity to design shoes for his company.
2: What was the biggest thing you learned? He didn't discriminate against me. He didn't care what I looked like. He didn't care where I came from. He just saw someone with talent that he wanted to leverage for his company, to make his company better. He was my first professional mentor. And and for me, it was something that I value still to this day. I mean, before COVID, I would see Robert every twice a year in Las Vegas at a trade show, and I would tell him, thank you, because he didn't have to do that. You know, he didn't have to give me a chance to prove that I belonged to be there. And so I really spent my whole career making sure he understood, A, I appreciated what he did, but also that he didn't make sure he knew he didn't make a mistake. <laughs> and and that was really the beginning of my mentorship as a mentor to mentor other people. And, and that's why when, when we have our, our mentor moments and we have our students, I put on my students, you have to mentor two people and you make sure they mentor two people. Because if it wasn't for Robert, seeing just raw talent and challenging me to elevate up in this environment that I was going to be outnumbered in and uncomfortable. in, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you to this day.
0: Talk about your um, race to beat him into the office in the morning. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs>
2: yes. So for me, I started studying him. And so whenever I would come in and He was always there, and and I would go by his office and see him reading the newspaper and talking into his dictaphone. And so I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to try to get here before he does. And so for five days it took me to beat him into work one day, and it was 5.30, where I got there at 5, and he got there at 5.30. And um, he was like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I I just want to come in when you come in so I can understand what do you do in the morning? Why do you come in so early? And so he was like, all right, well, come and sit with me. And so I sat with him and I saw his routine. He would provide information for himself by reading the Wall Street Journal, reading footwear news, getting business insights, getting industry insights. He would then talk into the dictaphone and talk about his day. Like he would outline, these are all the things I want to accomplish today. And he would give it to his executive assistant and she would type it out and put it on his desk. And he would go about his day checking off everything on his list. And so I started doing the same thing. And and for me, I would do it with Post-it notes. I would write on the Post-it note, stick it on my desk so I can see it. I didn't have an executive assistant. So I just... Post-it notes. And that's how I start my day every day. I mean, still to this day, I wake up. I read information about the industry, read information about just life in general. I read inspirational quotes. I share those inspirational quotes. And then I have my to-do list. And then I check my email. I have a set routine that I do every single day, ever since I was 19 years old.
0: You were the youngest footwear designer in the industry, yep. the youngest Black footwear designer in the industry. After two years as a designer at LA Gear, you moved to Detroit to work for a small footwear company, but then Robert became the owner of Sketchers and he asked you to join him as, as head designer back in LA. What was that like for you to become head designer at that point?
2: Well, I mean, it was, it was really a, a culmination of me soaking up knowledge from everybody that was around me. So my first few years at L.A. Gear was like my college, so to speak, right? But I was doing it in real time as a real job. And as you said, I I did move to Detroit. First time I ever saw snow at 24 years old. Uh, So, again, grew up in L.A., L.A. kid, so never saw snow before. That lasted 10 months, and I moved back to L.A. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the position was special because before I left, I was telling Robert, I said, hey, you know, there are some guys downtown L.A. that are really doing some really amazing things on the apparel side. And I said, you know, if you ever get a chance to work with these guys, you should really consider it. And, and those guys were two companies. One of them was called Cross Colors and the other one was called Carl Canai. And they were the pioneers of streetwear fashion. What these kids see today, they pioneered this in the late 80s, early 90s downtown L.A., And so Robert received the licensing rights to do footwear for those two companies. And so that's what he wanted me to come back to L.A. and head up to be the head of designing footwear for Cross College and Carl Kanai. And the blessing with that was here I am. I'm 24 years old um, and I'm designing shoes for these guys who are younger than me by the name of Tupac and by the name of Notorious B.I.G. And. Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Puffy, and not knowing that these would become hip hop royalty, right? Like I was just as young as they were, but here I am in the middle of it working with these amazing talented artists. And for me, like that was really the jump start for me to, to really advocate for more black designers because I didn't see any. My whole time at LA gear, I didn't see anyone else that look like me, but me and the design team. But when I got to Skechers and I was working with these guys on the apparel side, I was seeing all these black designers on the apparel side, still not seeing any on the footwear side. And so that really is what started my quest to diversify the footwear industry was I I need more people sitting next to me so I can teach and develop and grow folks so we can diversify this industry.
0: You launched your own brand. Under the Skechers corporate umbrella, and I believe it was called, Citi,
2: it was S-I-T-Y. called City, S I T Y, yep.
0: And sporting goods business ranked your line as the number two brand to look out for behind the Jordan brand. Yeah, is <laughs> that what first? interested Nike in your talents or had t- you went to Nike, you joined Nike as a senior designer in 2000 and then in, tw- in 2001 joined Jordan as a design director. How did you go from Skechers to Nike?
2: Yeah. So the license expired, um, when he was licensing CrossCard and Carl eye footwear and he asked, well, what do you want to do now? And, and I was like, well, I've, I've, I've traveled all over the world and I noticed that style is different in other countries and it's different even in other states. And I so said, I would love to create my own brand called City, um, with the S standing for style and using the influences from different cities globally as the way that we would design the brand. He supported it. He backed it. Um, it was under sketchers. And as you said, it did really well the first year, and Sporting Goods Business does all these trend forecasts. And they placed us as number two behind Jordan Brand. Shortly after that happened, Skechers started the process of going public. And when they wanted to go public, they started to make the books look better, right? So they start to divest of smaller things in the organization to clean things up. And I was one of the things that they divested in. And simultaneously, when that ranking came out, Nike was looking for someone to help them compete with Timberland to make boots because Nike was an athletic shoe company and they didn't know really know how to make lifestyle boots. I was doing that already for years under the City brand, but also under Carl and Cross Colors. And so a friend of mine, who ironically worked at Adidas in Portland, told his friend who worked at Nike about me, and he was like, "Hey, you should probably get this guy up here for an interview." And so they brought me up for an interview, and I remember I, I had eight interviews in one day, um, which wow. they don't do that. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> oh, um, I think but- they
0: do. <laughs> From what uh, I know, they, there's a lot yeah. of interviewing. It takes a lot so, of yes. OKs so to
2: get chosen. I, I, I did it all in one day, and, and they were like, well, we will give you a call back in two weeks. And two weeks to the day, I got a phone call from Nike, um, and I accepted the job as a footwear designer for their lifestyle division. And then two hours later, I got another call from Nike Offering me another job from another category. So I I got two phone calls in the same day for two jobs, but I I accepted the first one that called me. And and so that was how I moved to Oregon. I mean, for me, the the real opportunity was this is the best company. I need to gauge my skills against the best who work at that company too. And, And that was really the driving force for me moving to Oregon was OK, I'm, I'm going to be next to the best. I mean, where do I stack up in in that equation? And then after a year at Nike, you know, the Jordan brand was on the fourth floor where I was at and, and they had an open position and, and they asked me to join. And so then I'm, I transferred from Nike to Jordan brand.
0: Now you were stacking up against the best in the business. How did you feel? Are you
2: um, measured? I'm not a conceited person at all. Um, So I'll say this with that preference. But yes, I thought I was better. Um, Okay. (laughs) Primarily, I would say because I didn't have a popular logo to work with. And because they had a logo that everyone loved, you could put that logo on almost anything and it would make the shoe look better. Right. And so I learned how to design without having the luxury of a logo to fall back on. So I had to pay more attention to design and give you something more interesting to look at. So I would just say from that perspective, I think I was just taught a different way. And so when I was able to marry that creativity with a strong brand, the things that I did design kind of connected the dots completely for me. But at the same time, I'm I'm there learning from all these amazing people that have had a 10, 20-year head start on me, too. I was just as much of a student as I was as a professional.
0: When you started with the Jordan brand, they were a $275 million brand. Yeah. You helped grow it to a $1.3 billion brand. Yeah. And you've said you put pressure on yourself by thinking that you were always the underdog.
2: Yes. Why? Um, I've always felt that way. I still feel that way. I mean, I always do. I-, I think because I've never let success go to my head. I look at the word success as a past tense word where it's something that happened already. And I shouldn't be dwelling on stuff that happened already. And when you, when you work at Nike, you're, you're wired to focus on the future. And you're wired to think two and three and four years ahead of time. So I was always moving forward mentally. And, and so my mindset was always never to rest on where I was. Um, and, and I remember one day um, I, I did something. I, I had a shoe sell really well at LA Gear. And Robert one day came over and he said, congratulations, take five minutes off and get back to work. (laughs) And and I'm just like, so I've always had that mindset of like, okay, take pause for a minute, acknowledge it, and then let it go and get back to work. Uh, I've just never been one to be stagnant and stale. I'm I'm a constant learner. I've always want to improve. I'm always trying to learn something new every day, small or big. I'm, I'm trying to always move forward but i've I've always felt like I'm not supposed to be here, and that mentality has never left me because I'm not supposed to be here mathematically. I'm not supposed to be here and and that's never been lost on me, and it's still never lost on me to this day
0: shortly after you got the job with the Jordan brand, your mother passed away, yep. and despite the new job, you sat with your mother for the last thirty days of her life.
2: yeah What was that like for you um the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and the most valuable thing I've ever done in my life because I had a chance to be with her for her last moments. And before she was unable to talk the last two weeks, I apologized to her for leaving her because I left California to move to Oregon. And she said, Boy, if you would not have left, I would have beat your butt if you didn't go and and follow your dreams. Um, but I always felt guilty. I always felt guilty leaving her um, because I, I did miss out on three years of her life, even though I did go back home uh, regularly, but I wasn't there every day. But I was comforted by knowing that she wanted me to be where I was. And then as I continued to sit with her And I would talk to her and share and thank her for everything. And she was able to nod and and say yes. But it was tough. If I could do it all over again, I would do it all over again. It felt like it was yesterday. But we just never had a really intimate conversations. and, And we did that for those 30 days. You said this about
0: your mom in your TED Talk. She took me from a problem child in Englewood and turned me into a global problem solver. She turned my dreams into reality far beyond what I even imagined. She turned death into life for me. At the same time, she turned my destiny into a career and my career into a passion. Were you able to tell her that before she passed? Every single word and more and more. You've said that your relationship with your mom in that moment, in that time, um made you look at your craft a little bit
2: differently. How so? So before my mom passed, my my other brother Ronnie passed away too. So you lost both your older brothers, Mike and Ronnie? Yep, both of them passed. Both had the gift. Um my career became theirs, the one that they never they never had a chance to to have. Um, and, and my mom is the one who gave us the gift, like she was the one the gift came from. And so for for me, I was just trying to make her proud. That was really my whole goal and still is to this day. Um, you know, even though, you know, she's not here physically, I know she's here with me as well as my two brothers are here with me as well, because there there are times I have no idea how I made it home. <laughs> Um, you know, driving and sleepy and all these things. So I know I'm, I'm being watched over. And so all of her life lessons she's taught me either verbally or indirectly, um, I paid attention to. And it has shaped me for who I am today. I mean, for half of my life when she was here, she was disabled and she never complained. And I never complain either. I don't complain if I'm tired. I don't complain if I have too much work to do. Um, I don't complain because she showed me what that should look like because she had every right to complain and she never did. So all of my strength I get from her. Over the course of your career at Nike, you
0: developed more than 50 patents. And you designed more than 500 footwear styles for artists, including Tupac, Notorious, B.I.G., Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Nas. Your designs have been worn in six different Olympics and have graced all Major League Baseball, NFL, and NBA stadiums by athletes, including Derek Jeter, Carmelo Anthony, and Michael Jordan. What was it like collaborating with Michael Jordan?
2: Oh, that was the craziest thing ever. (laughs) Um, So the Lakers played in Inglewood until the last maybe 20, 25 years. They moved downtown, Los Angeles, but they played in Inglewood. And me and my friends would always sneak into basketball games. And we would sneak in because in Hollywood, they would leave like in the third quarter, beginning of the third quarter. So we would just stand by the door and just slide right on in or ask them for their tickets and um, the last game I snuck in was the 1991 NBA Finals, the Lakers versus the Chicago Bulls, and they won the championship. Chicago Bulls won the championship. And that was my first time ever seeing Michael Jordan play in person. And 10 years later, I was on a couch sitting next to him, showing a design to him that I designed for him. I got forewarned by my team that I worked with in Jordan that he's hard on young players, he's hard on young guys, he calls all of the new employees new jacks. And and so they were they were just pumping me up and preparing me for the barrage of questions that he's going to throw at me because he's just that kind of guy, right? So he was throwing them at me, and I was answering them. And I was taking them as he was throwing them. I was taking them and he eventually backed down because he saw that. Oh, OK, you know what you're talking about. OK, I'm, OK, now I'm, I'm, I'm buying what you're selling me. And honestly, all he was doing is just making me better at my craft. No different than what he did to his teammates on the basketball court. If you're going to be on the floor with him, you better be ready. You, gotta, you better be prepared and for anything. And and so I would say that time, that that decade spending working with him directly and, and some of the other guys too, Mello and Jeter and Roy Jones, it just sharpened my skills as a creative and as a person that I instill into our students to this day. But it was that edge that I learned from Jordan, compounded with my already competitive nature. Adding his competitive nature on top of it, that's where I become a problem. If you cross me and, and it becomes a competitive thing, <laughs> oh, it, it's gonna be a problem.
0: you said that one thing you didn't realize when you were working at Nike was the trap of doing something you love. What is what is the trap of doing something you love?
2: The trap is because you are a designer and you're creative. You could do it all day long, right, and you and you wake up and I mean you realize, "Oh wow, I forgot to eat today <laughs> um or I should probably go to sleep because it's dark outside. The trap you have to be careful of is that you love what you do so much that it could become unhealthy for you um you could develop stress, which I did all of those things I just mentioned to you. <laughs> Um, to the point where I was in the hospital for a few days because of just exhaustion and high blood pressure because I put the pressure on myself to work a certain level where there's going to be people who will be better designers than me, but I can't ever let someone outwork me. I took that to heart. And so by doing that, it damaged me in my health a bit and i think it's it's partly because i love what i do like i would do what i do for free yeah and when when you do something like that you get lost doing what you do and you don't realize you didn't take care of yourself now i have a better understanding of balance but it's it's a it's a certain wiring that you could you could achieve based on your drive to be great at something and 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 i have that drive
0: When you were at Nike, they gave everyone four weeks off after 10 years of employment. Uh, You got that four, and then you took another four.
2: Yeah. Uh, What did you do during that time off? So I took the additional four because I never took any other time off. (laughs) So so I had so much vacation time built up. They forced me to to take it. Um, But a few things happened. Um, one, I resigned as design director. I was tired and my body was not good. My mind was not good. And I knew I couldn't do that job anymore. And and so I told them I was going to retire as design director. I need this time off to figure out what I want to do with the rest of my, my life. And whether I'm coming back or not, I don't know yet. And, and that's the point of the sabbatical list to disconnect And so I took the time off, and and I want to try this idea of a footwear design class because during my tenure at Jordan, I would meet kids online that are high school kids or college kids that want to be in design, and and I would mentor them on the side and help them become my interns because they couldn't get footwear design education in college. So I would just do it and teach them what I knew because – that's what I wish I would have had, you know, if I had the Internet <laughs> and if I had access to people. And now kids had access to me. It was easy to figure out my email address at Nike. And so kids would always email me. And so it just kept bubbling up, like maybe I should try this teaching thing and see what happens. And, and so I started teaching at the University of Oregon as an adjunct instructor. That was my first time at a college college. <laughs> teaching, um, and I taught this class called Pencil, and I taught it the way I worked, and I taught it in the most extreme way that we would work, and it was two weeks. It was every day for two weeks, twelve, roughly 12 to 14 hours every day straight through. I wanted to put students through the extreme case of what it feels like. To be a designer, not look like, but feels like to be a designer and pay for 40 students' tuition and housing to be a part of this program. And they left it. They didn't want to leave. They went back to their respective schools or their respective homes and told everybody about what happened in Portland for two weeks. The beauty of it is one student documented every day and posted it up online. So kids started following along online. And after it was over, I started getting all these emails from people saying, hey, can you show me how to do that? And then schools started emailing me and say, hey, can you come teach this at our school? And here I am teaching at Art Center, which is one of the top product design schools in the country. The school I later realized I would have attended. If I knew it was there in Pasadena, California, which is only 30 minutes away from where I grew up, I'm teaching at this prestigious number one design school in the country. And then I get a call from Parsons, one of the number one fashion design schools in the country in New York City, and then MIT, one of the top engineering schools in the country in Boston. And here I am, the kid who didn't go to college, teaching at some of the best colleges in the world. And I'm teaching what I actually learned for 25 years as a designer, that was my curriculum. It wasn't like I had this secret sauce or anything. I just taught my process. And I fell back in love with design. I didn't realize how much the corporate side took from me, the joy. And, and I fell back in love with it because I was basically just sharing everything that I learned, and just to see these young minds embrace it and then do something with it. I didn't want to lose that feeling, and I didn't want to go back into corporate America because I loved that feeling. I did go back, but I told them on my first day back that I was leaving in six months. And so I gave them a head start that I was leaving, and then I permanently retired on April 1st, 2011.
0: You launched your first class, I believe, on June 24th, 2010 at the University of Oregon, as you mentioned. Of the 40 kids in that class, 34 are all employed as footwear designers today. Yes. You, as you mentioned, started to extend the classes all over the world. And then you acquired a recently closed HBCU titled the Lewis College of Business in Detroit, Michigan. What made you decide to do that?
2: So all of my time with the with the Academy in Portland, we were solving the diversity issue in the food industry. In 2020, when George Floyd was murdered, and the corporation started making these pledges to support black communities, and they started making pledges to education. And then when the when some of those companies started to decided, hey, I want to support design education, they realized we were really the only option out there that was putting together quality education and churning out quality, diverse talent. And so it went from us working just with footwear companies to apparel companies, to packaging companies, to furniture design companies, to multiple areas of design. And simultaneously, I was made aware of the college, Lewis College, by an alumnus of Pencil who lives in Detroit. And he casually mentioned, hey, you know, I think Detroit used to have an HBCU, but I think it closed. And and I'm like, wait, what do you mean Detroit had an HBCU? I've never heard of that before. And so once I discovered Lewis College of Business, I was first ashamed. I never heard of Violet Lewis, who was the founder of the college. She was one of three black women to found an HBCU of all of them since the 1860s. And she started it as a secretary school in Indianapolis because she just wanted black women to have the ability to work in corporate offices like that was her intent. And she she received a fifty dollar loan and borrowed typewriters and started her own college. This is in 1928. Yes. And I'm just like, wow, this woman is amazing. And how do I did not know about her? And so the school did extremely well in Indianapolis and so well Detroit offered her to open a campus in Detroit and it became very important to the city of Detroit's economic development around diverse talent working in corporate offices. We were in the automobile factories but never in the corporate offices. And so all of the first black office employees for Ford and GM and Michigan Bell were all graduates of Lewis College of Business. And and so over the years, it continued to flourish. And the school was caught in this weird predicament because it wasn't well-funded enough to create new curriculum. And because they couldn't adjust with the times, they were left behind. And when they were left behind, they were forced to close their doors. So they closed their doors in 2013. When I heard about it and I was reading all the interviews Um, from the family that were trying to reopen the college, but they were unsuccessful. Um, I started investigating and on the side of the building, I saw the realtor's name and phone number. So I called and said, hey, I would love to speak to the family about possibly reopening the college. And that was how I was introduced to the family. Um, I flew to Detroit and introduced this idea of reopening the college as a business and a design school because HBCUs, don't have a breadth of curriculum for design. They are fantastic institutions around law and business and engineering and entrepreneurship, but design is not one of their strongest areas. And that was our strength and our strength married with being a historically black college. It met the needs of the industry today. They believed in my vision and I acquired the college we renamed the college Pencil Lewis College of Business and Design, and we reopened the college on May 2nd of 2022 here in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, but it was a little bit of a challenge to reopen the college because there was no state laws um, in Michigan around if a college closed and wanted to reopen, what, what, what should you do? So we had to rewrite. Well, we had to write laws. And so we had to write two state bills. Um, Both bills were passed in two and a half months. By the governor, right? Governor Governor Whitmer passed them in two and a half months, which was amazing. Um, And that cleared our path to um, reopen the college here in Detroit. In
0: 1989, you were the youngest designer in the footwear design industry, and you were one of three people of color in the industry at that time. During your 2014 TED Talk, you stated that there were still only about 175 people of color in an industry of over 5,000 people. What do things look like now,
2: another eight years later? Sadly, um, we're a little over 200 now. Um, I I, I did a talk a few few months back. I, I chronicled the history of the Black footwear designer and the... First one, I would say, started in 1986. His name is Wilson Smith. And you fast forward 36 years later. It's amazing how an industry would allow 3% growth. There's nothing in a corporation that they would allow 3% growth. No, not a thing. Nothing. For one quarter, either they're going to fix it or get rid of it. But for 36 years, almost 40 years... The industry was okay with 3% growth. And so for, for me, the, the troubling part to that is that diversity is the only thing that corporations try to do and get away with it. Imagine if you have a job and you say, oh, you know what, I'm gonna try to do my job today. And then you don't. And then you come up the next day, oh, you know, I'm gonna try to do my job again today. And then you don't, right? So imagine like that's exactly what's happening with diversity as it pertains to all corporate industries. They keep trying and trying, trying. But the problem is there's no accountability because there's nothing else in that company that they try to do. They either do it or don't. Yeah, It's a
0: mandate or it's not.
2: And so, so to me, like that's really my soapbox is when is diversity gonna be as important as a company making money? Mm -hmm. When is diversity gonna be as important as that CEO or any C-suite persons tied to their compensation? When is it gonna be held accountable by individuals or a corporation? Until that happens, it will always be something that they're trying to do and it will always be in single digits. It's below 5% now in all design industries. Now, that's unacceptable. But until those corporations start to create some measures and take it seriously, then it will change. But until then, it just will be an afterthought.
0: Well, I think... Though it's sad to say the power lies with the people buying the products of those corporations to hold them accountable for these types of. And that's the only way things are going to change. That's the only reason that any of the corporations are behaving in, in any more sustainable manner. It's because consumers don't want to buy things that are unsustainable as much as they used to.
2: You're absolutely correct. The consumer has all the power. Yep. They don't realize they have all the power. Well, hopefully, people listening will start to feel that a little bit more. I hope so.
0: Duane, the, the last thing I want to talk to you about is the result of your many different talents and passions, sort of coming together in the creation of Gems. Yeah, and Gems stands for the John Ernest Matt Zelliger Studio. Who was he, and why the name Gems?
2: So he he was an amazing man in 1883. He revolutionized the footwear industry. 1883. I want my 18, listeners to hear. Not yeah, 1983. Yes. 1883. <laughs> 1883. He was a cobbler and he made shoes in Lynn, Massachusetts. And he was making 50 pairs a day. And the whole industry was make the equipment was making 50 pairs a day. And he felt there was a better way. And for the next few years, he created his own machine. It's called the Automated Lasting Machine. Those 50 pairs a day evolved to 700 pairs a day based on his patent that he got approval for on March 20th, 1883. He revolutionized the footwear industry. Um, here is this black man in, in, in Land, Massachusetts doing it. And unfortunately, he only lived uh, about six more years before he passed. So he never really got a chance to see his invention really revolutionizing industry completely. He has been someone that has been lost in our history books. I can't remember when he received his stamp. I mean, but it was maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? But that was over 130-something years ago he did that. And so he's just now getting his due from, quote-unquote, a stamp about 30 years ago. When 2020 occurred and all the terrible things that happened with George Floyd and other senseless murders, corporations started to say, hey, you know, we need to figure out a way to be more supportive of black communities. When major corporations, footwear companies, footwear stores, when they looked at, "Okay, how can we diversify our vendor base? They realized they didn't have any black footwear brands. And so they reached out to me and said, hey, you know, could you help us with this? DSW was one of those brands that we talked to and we shared, hey, we have an idea of diversifying this industry. We are training and developing future talent here in Detroit now that can be better prepared to create their own brands and and, and have their own success in our industry. And, and so I said, hey, you know, what if we created a footwear factory that produced product for black footwear companies? And so they they said that they loved the idea and they supported it with an investment. And they invested into this factory that we call GEMS. And we named it after Jen because it's its acronym for his name. So it's the initials for his name. And then we added a S for studio. But we wanted to call it GEMS because... That's what these talented people are. Mm. They are coveted people that don't exist that we're helping bring to life. And we want them to be treated as special as they are. But we also want them to create special products as well that honors who they are. And it utilizes Jan's original process, a form of his original process that he um, pioneered over 130 something years ago. The factory is being constructed now. Um, we will have our grand opening March 20th on the and 140th anniversary of him receiving his patent is when we will open the factory.
0: That's incredible. Dwayne. that's just incredible. So GEMS is going to be the first Black-owned footwear factory in the United States, and it will be providing young, aspiring Black designers an opportunity to create their own brands and see them come to fruition. Is that correct?
2: Yes. And be sold at DSW. And be sold exclusively at DSW. And and for, for DSW to have that vision, you know, that is what we talked about a little bit earlier, putting yeah. their money where their mouth is, right? They recognized that didn't exist in their supply chain and they concretely wanted to do something about it. That's what I'm talking about. Whether it was working with me or working with someone else, do something about it. Right. Don't just say, oh, it'd be great if we had this or had that. The the good folks at DSW was like, yeah, this is, this is important to us. And we're going to make this come to life.
0: Dwayne, thank you for making so much work that matters. Thank you for doing so many things that matter. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
2: Thank you very much. This was this was a great conversation. It made me cry a few times, reminiscing oh, on some you. things, but but thank you very much for this opportunity to share with you and your audience.
0: My absolute honor to read more about Duane's work, you can go to pensollewis.com. That's dot s.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor in chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.
2: You know, Star Wars is this thing that can like really take over your life. I've had such a roller coaster ride of a time with Star Wars.
1: That's Ahmed Best. He played Jar Jar Binks in the Star Wars prequels.
2: Everyone was excited for the world to see it. George would be like, get ready, this is gonna change your
1: life. That George, by the way, is George Lucas. I am not George Lucas. I am Dylan Marin, and I'm making a podcast about Jar Jar Binks. Yes, Jar Jar Binks. Now, if you have no idea who that is or what I just said, that is totally fine. And if you do know, you're probably laughing right now. Or maybe you're shaking your head in dismay that we are devoting an entire podcast to, and just to be clear, I'm quoting here, the most annoying movie character of all time. But behind this fictional character is a very real person who found himself at the center of one of the Internet's very first hate campaigns. It was everywhere I went,
2: and I was the reason, right? Everybody's like, you ruined movies. You've got mail.
1: Now, I have been obsessed with this story for years. It feels eerily relevant to everything we see and experience online today. You may think you know Jar Jar Binks, But I promise you, there is so much more to the story. The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks, coming soon from the TED Audio Collective.
2: There is always redemption. We as people who love stories and storytellers, we love redemption stories.
1: The full season will drop on Apple Podcasts on June 28th. So subscribe to TED Audio Collective Plus to get them early and binge them all. Otherwise, you can listen weekly starting June 28th, wherever you love listening to podcasts.